0: Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. Um, my name is Dave Burrows. I'm the director of Snowpro Ski School based here in Val in Switzerland. This week, I had the, uh, or some time ago actually, but I had the great pleasure of speaking to Andy McCann. Now, I first met Andy when I was taking my Level Three British uh, Technical Exam, and um, and it really, really was an amazing week for me. There was a, there was two or three things within that week. That that I got from Andy that have sort of stayed with me to this date, and we actually talk about a couple of those on on this podcast. Um, but I, I, he's a tough man to get hold of because he sort of uh, flies all over the world doing events for, for for Rolls Royce amongst his his skiing activity, and um, and he's quite a difficult man to pin down. But so I suppose that's one uh, benefit of of this current um, coronavirus thing is is that we've been able to actually get access to some, uh, some, some some great guests and I'm, I'm really, really pleased to have spent this, uh, this time interviewing Andy and sort of picking his brains on some of the questions that I had. Um, in terms of corona, I'm pretty sick of hearing about it, but uh, here in Switzerland we finished, uh, we finished our sort of phase one of our, our um, measures here on, uh, I think it was about 11th of May, so we're about seven days in now to, uh, to sort of post-corona life. Um, people are out enjoying the sunshine. The, the cafes and restaurants and terraces are packed, all, all, although with a little bit more distance. And um, people seem to be going back to to, to normal relatively quickly. So uh, wherever I, wherever you are, I hope that experience comes to you as well. And uh, we'll see where all of this leads. Um, one thing from my point of view is that I really really hope that this doesn't happen again because I'm not sure how many businesses within the tourism sector in certainly in this part of Switzerland will survive another uh, shutdown of this, this sort of length of time um, and I think that's something that whoever makes these decisions really really needs to bear in mind if they're, if they're thinking of a Corona lockdown part two I wonder if there is another way now that the, uh, the statistics have all come out uh, in terms of who is at risk and who isn't but uh, there you go. There's there's other people than me that is um, that are working on that. In uh, in part one here, um, we talk about sort of uh, Andy's skiing in history, uh, skiing background and history, and then we move on to uh, a couple of quite it's quite a technical episode. This one, so we talk about the hip joint, we talk about snowplow ramp angle boots, that kind of thing. So there's quite a lot of technical information in this first one, and uh, I really really hope that uh, you enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here we go. Uh, Welcome to the Ski Instructor Podcast. Andy McCann, how are you?
1: Hello. I'm great, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we can start with uh, thanking you very much for taking the time and great work of what you're doing putting this
0: together. Oh that's great I mean you've been on my um, my hit list for a while because um, we did our well I did my level three technical exam under the British system in your um, uh, under your your uh, Kenai and um, and a couple of things that you, you you know you said on that course have stuck with me for a very very long time and 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 I know a lot of People really, really respect kind of your knowledge within the industry. So, uh, so it's been quite important to me to try and get you onto the podcast. I think we can. Uh, It'll it be lovely to have a record of of, of some of the stuff that, that you can tell us.
1: Super. Thank you. All
0: right. Well, let's um let's start with a, a bit of a bio. We always start with a bit of a bio. Maybe you can uh, give us a sort of potted history of of um, of your sort of skiing past. I know that you were there. For those who have listened to the Joe Beer episode will know that you were part of the Andorra scene back then. And um, yeah, maybe you could just give us an idea of how you came up within the industry and,
1: and uh, where that took you. Um, well, first of all, I was lucky enough to go skiing with my parents. Um, they hadn't skied before. Um, the folks spoke like the snow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So by the time uh, my parents were in a position to go skiing. They were unfortunately married with two children. So we went to Austria. <laughs> right. uh, I was the ripe old age of four. So on my first ski trip, I had lace leather boots and skis with screw on edges and, and, uh, cable bindings.
2: Wow. Uh,
1: and I just remember the whole experience just being completely surreal. Um, and my father said to me, he said, after your first turn, which was on the first run, mm. fortunately, um, and I managed to do a little, what I call is a kid's hockey stop. Yeah. And uh, his, my instructor looked at him and he said, I think you'll be okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> because obviously I was surrounded by Austrian children. And, um, you know, bearing in mind this was back in the 70s, in the mid-70s, mm.
2: um,
1: for British families to go skiing. Then I remember my father telling me, I think it cost almost as much as the house to go on a two-week holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I sort of got the bug really, and um, my father was part of a ski club actually in Somerset, where I live,
2: wow.
1: the Mendip Ski Club, and he was instrumental of um, looking at sites to put together artificial ski centres. Huh? So um, we, he, or he was involved in the original planning for the Gloucester Ski Centre, yeah. and when Gloucester Artificial Slope opened, we used to go there as a family skiing. Mm. But they had a no drag lift, nothing, so you had to walk up. Yeah. And bearing in mind it was, it's still now one of the longest in the country. Yeah. Um you certainly uh you certainly earned your turns after walking up there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was nuts, it was really nuts. But everyone used to do it. We used to go there on a on a Sunday and, and have a great time and you know, the ski poles were nothing more than uh wooden broom handles because it was such early days. Mm. I will also remember we did some grass skiing as well. Okay. Um, and which was just nuts. Again, you used to walk up to the top of a hill and come down.
2: Yeah.
1: And <clears throat> as soon as the, the slope in South Wales opened at Pontypool, they actually had a drag lift and we realized it was quicker to get to Pontypool and that's where I really got the bug of, of, um, of coaching, I suppose. Um, the instructors over there were absolutely first class. There was a chap who ran the ski school at Pontypool called Colin Whiteside, who was part of the Bayesley Interski demo team. And he was, he was just very clear on a technique. And I think on family holidays, what struck me most was every time you went to a ski school the instructor would tell you something different and um, although I was young um, I sort of I wanted to think logically Mm. why one instructor would tell me to do one thing and then the year later on a family holiday I was asked to do something else Um, there never seemed to be any connection between one week to the next and that was interesting thinking about now even if we went skiing in austria mm. for three four years in a row there didn't seem to be much continuity even back then yeah uh, so I, I guess i got fascinated with with technique even as a kid but when i started to ski with people that could speak my language although it was in south wales mm. uh, met some great friends over there and some lifelong buddies um and i actually did my training there in between doing my level one and level two basic course. Yes. Uh, slightly before that, I was on a ski trip <clears throat> with my school in Italy. And uh, my ski instructor said, um, he said, oh, you, you know, you've done a little bit of skiing. I said, yeah, it's, it's you know, i do as much as I can. Mm. That instructor happened to be a guy called Derek Bowen, who was on the English ski team at the time. Mm-hmm he gave me the address of Basie and I didn't even know Basie existed at mm. that time I was only about 13 or 14 so I wrote a letter to Basie asking if I could do a ski instructor course and they said yeah of course you can you know when you get to the age I think it was 17 or 18 then was the restriction mm. uh, you can come on a course <clears throat> unfortunately my father was very ill in hospital for a period of about three years right. and. Um, <clears throat> My grandfather wrote a letter to the school to see if I could take some time off school to go and do a ski course, because it was classes further education. Right. So I actually finished up doing my very first Basie course, effectively, in my um, <clears throat> leading up to my Christmas school holidays. Hmm. Um, hence, he didn't tell the truth on my um, Basie application form of my date of birth. He sort of added a couple of years on so I could actually do my course. Yeah. So I rolled up in Val Toren in December. Uh, It's not the warmest place in the world anyway, but uh, I rolled up there in December surrounded by what I thought was, you know, world-class skiers. And there's me at the ripe old age of about 15 (laughs) in this class, just wondering what on earth had hit me.
0: Yeah.
1: That's why I had my first beer as well, I think, to the extent (laughs) that beers those days were a litre and nothing smaller. Yes. So I learned the hard way, I think, on my first week. (laughs) Excuse me. And then it continued, really. Um, My first trainer was um, Patsy, Patsy Duncan, who was was superb, and I've got a lot to thank her for. And then um, I actually went for an interview with a ski company um, because I didn't have a job to go to. Mm. Um, um, During that summer, I left school. And at the end of the year, I, I did an interview, and that season I was due to spend in France, unexpectedly I got the job Um, bearing in mind I had no teaching experience at all Mm. other than the hours that you have to do for the um, for the Basie and um, bizarrely they sent me a letter with about three weeks before we were due to leave saying that your position with our company as a ski instructor is no longer required because the French don't want any British qualified instructors in the resort and that was back in, I think, about 83.
0: Okay, so this uh, is
1: a new thing then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I sort of panicked a little bit because it was sort of then, I think, two weeks prior to the um, start of the season. Um, and I went to the ski show in Ors Court, bumped into John Pickett, who was a trainer at the time, who I got to know very well whilst I was up in Scotland doing my basic courses. Mm-hmm. When I did my Bayesi 2 back in eighty three, and uh whilst I was up in Scotland, he said, Look, if you ever wanted to work in uh, in Andorra, mm. he said, Give me a call. Um Of course you can't get hold of no, there was no mobile phones and you can't just pick up the phone to somebody. Yeah. And my first question to him was, Where's Andorra? Um, I thought it was a ski resort. I didn't realise it was a country.
2: Mm.
1: And um So I went to the ski show, saw John, and I said, look, is that job still open? He said, yeah, of course. Meet Tim, Tim Rosenberg. Um, I said, oh, hi, Tim. How are you? He said, well, I can give you a lift. (laughs) I said, a lift to where? He said, to Andorra. (laughs) Amazing. I'm, you know, I'm 16 at this time, um, 17 just. And uh, I said, okay. So my father, because I couldn't drive, obviously, at the time, my father took me to his house in King's Road.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: We
1: jumped in his Allegro with a square steering wheel, and um, twenty hours later, we finished up in uh, in Andorra. Amazing! And, uh, to the start of the season, and I spent the first three weeks living on someone's couch because I had nowhere to stay. I just knew nothing, absolutely nothing, because mm. i have been living at home and obviously well looked after by my no, folks. Yes. <laughs> I thought everything would be done for me. No, little did I know that you know cooking, washing, and all those sort of normal things that you're meant to do. Um,
0: it's funny actually. We had a we had a ski instructor with us this year. Um, I normally employ guys with a slightly older age pro, age profile, but I took the opportunity this year to to reduce slightly the age of my team. And one of the guys, bless him, uh, Ryan. Uh, hi, Ryan. If you're there. He's only twenty-one, and he's like really, you know, wet behind the ears. Can't cook, can't look after himself, can't clean. Like it was a real sort of throwback to being that age, you know, when you can't can, couldn't do anything. It was so funny, and everyone just took the entire season, you know, just taking a taking a Mickey out of this guy because he was just sort of, you know, living on frozen pizza and and waiting for, for people to come out and do his washing for him. It's hilarious. Absolutely, I think my
1: staple diet was Mars bars and orange juice. <laughs> I mean, It was ridiculous, you know, but that's where I met some lifelong friends um, and, and you know that was my first season I think it was 83 um, and the ski school was quite small at the time and John Pickett was the technical director and um, I think from a I couldn't have asked for um, a better start really in my ski in my ski career mm. and then it sort of tumbled really from there um, tumbled in a good way
2: yeah
1: I, <laughs> I would say Sponsored by Salomon, um, fully sponsored by Salomon, so I was involved in their product research. And they sponsored me because I was the youngest in the country with my qualification, so I guess they thought there was a little angle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That gave me an opportunity to work in the summertime as well, because it doesn't take um, anyone with a maths degree to work out that the summers are actually longer than the winters. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, when um, they cut when they cut your ski season off here in the middle of March, yeah, it, it, yeah. it surely feels like that, because, uh, well... Yeah, normally there's, you know, you're counting down the, the, the days until the snow comes, but it seems like a, a long, long way off right now. There's going to be so many people up at the glaciers in this summer if,
1: if, if they open. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope we can all get up there and uh, yeah. the snow won't be, uh, won't be ruined. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I started to work with Salomon and that was great. So That gave me an income during the summer. Mm. Um, I also worked, there was a couple of months in the middle where I used to work for my grandfather's construction company. Um, Just anything really to make ends meet. I never did a season in the Southern Hemisphere, although I had lots of um, opportunity. And I think working in the ski school in Andorra, in Soldera in Andorra, Mm. uh, um, gave us a lot of opportunity. If you had that on your CV, certainly back in the 80s and early 90s, It really was a passport to actually work anywhere because it was such a high regarded ski school
2: oh, that's great. The
1: amount of trainers that were working in the ski school that you could just turn to to, to talk to to help yeah even if it was simple things like uh, ski tuning you know we, we learned how to tune our skis properly because there was always somebody in the ski school that had been in the industry longer than you and it mm. was a real magnet before for good skiers because mm. um, it actually a ski school working overseas Mm. with British speaking and obviously Spanish and Catalan and mm. French speaking people. Um it was a real magnet for the for the guys from Australia, New Zealand, some Americans, Argentinians of course, used to come over in their in the European winter season. Mm. Mm. And it was just brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant. It wasn't like going to work, to be honest. It was it was great. Of course I started to drive over there to my car over there for the first season. I just remember certainly when Joe Mentioned how cheap everything was over there.
2: Mm.
3: I
1: remember <clears throat> actually, a friend of mine said, um, "We're going to get cold over the next few days. Make sure you've got some really good washer fluid in your in your car to clean your glass and antifreeze." I went, "Yeah, okay, no problem." He said, "I use gin." And I said, <laughs> "What?" He said, "It's cheaper than the antifreeze from <laughs> your water bottle than the antifreeze at the garage." And I went, You're joking. So sure enough I went to the supermarket and bought two liter bottle of gin for about at the time about 90p
2: yeah
1: um 500 pesetas or something Mm -hmm. and I just remember filling up a washer bottle fluid with gin and every time you would get to the border you would just um, you know you you would just squirt the washer and then this waft of gin would come over the car and of course they thought you'd been drinking and uh it cleaned the glass really well actually and it was cheaper than what you would buy in the fuel station
0: well uh, i live here in switzerland the the, the, the filling the the washer fluid for the car is actually super expensive i might investigate that as an option here
1: (laughs) (laughs) and that was i think the tone of uh of Andorra. i mean i I didn't go there as a dare i say a ski bum or anything like that Mm. i i was there as an instructor and uh I really wanted to progress with my career and that's where I spent really about seven ski seasons um, eventually took my level four and um, my race trainers qualification in sort of uh, 87 88 mm. I became a trainer shortly after that for Basie uh, I did a season in France for Ali Ross mm-hmm. um, who was great he was a great mentor I worked for him in sort of 88 89 and um, Shortly after that, I was lucky enough to be asked to be the technique editor for Ski Survey magazine, which is now Ski and Board. Mm. Um, And that was great. I was the editor there for for five years. Mm. And um, during that time, I was also picked up a sponsorship from Saab, who was very involved in, um, they wanted to be more involved in in winter sport. Mm. Sorry, there's a plane that's just gone overhead. I'm, I haven't
0: heard a plane for about a month. <laughs> you're, you're running outside your house pointing at it. Like a, <laughs>
1: like
0: strange everybody. object in this car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, the fighter jet boys are still, you know, you've been in Switzerland, I guess, enough. You, they, they fly <laughs> fighter jets quite often around here. So uh, that's the only air traffic we're seeing. Although there is, there has been for the last two days an absolutely enormous helicopter in our valley, which starts at, I don't know eight in the morning and, and just seems to be able to stay aloft pretty much for the whole day. So he's, he's moving trees backwards and forwards. Um, they're still clearing out all of the trees from the, uh, the massive storms that we had in November that knocked down a whole bunch of stuff. Well, wow, they're
1: still clearing from that. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's extraordinary. They do. I think they're taking the opportunity to clean up the forest as well while they're at it, you know, so they're um, sort of chopping down stuff that's dead or, or has fallen. So, yeah, that's the only air traffic that's going backwards and forwards around here is, is fighter jets and big helicopters. Hmm. <laughs> a bit
1: more exciting than the uh well, Yeah,
0: Well it's true. So so after that, so you're and then what, you're you're doing you were doing a bit of sort of trainer work for for because you, your life then took you in a slightly different direction.
1: Um I actually did a lot of work for Basie. I mean I would do at least sort of a dozen weeks a season because I wasn't based in any particular resort.
2: Yeah.
1: um, I had my own ski business um, teaching private clients called Alpine Mechanics, which I still have.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I was skiing with with customers in Colorado. I spent a lot of time in Colorado in different resorts. Mm -hmm. I finished up being based in doing most of my time in Telluride, which is still my favorite place on the planet. Okay. Um, Fortunately, I was at an event skiing with Franz Klammer, not to name drop, but he yeah, was he's a hell of a name drop. At all. <laughs> um, I ski with him quite a bit. He's actually based in um, Telluride. Is he? Yeah, he's got a lodge there. He's based over there when he spends time in, in the US. Huh. So we often swap groups when we're over there, which is quite funny. Um, yeah. Because my group often say, wow, we're skiing with Franz Klammer, and his groups are uh, and say to friends well, who's this English bloke who's that was this? <laughs> that don't worry it's only two runs you know yeah. just just <laughs> um he actually spoke to Telluride whilst we were at an event in Crested Butte and he said look if you if you want an introduction just let me know mm. I said I'd love one 24 hours later I was um I was at the uh, marketing office in Telluride. Fortunately, they were also sponsored by Saab as Mm. a resort, so that opened a few doors that otherwise wouldn't. Mm. I I ran a program there for quite a few years. Um, um, And it's still, you know, the staff are great over there, and as a resort, it's been fantastic. Aspen has also been a top favorite of mine as well. Mm. Um, Slightly different regulations when you work in or try and work in the US, yeah. because you're skiing on private land, you mm. have to. It doesn't matter your qualification. Yeah, um, obviously you need a qualification, but it doesn't matter too much. So you have to liaise very closely with the ski school
2: mm.
3: and
1: often, often the marketing department to make sure that you are legally allowed to be on their land. Otherwise, you get charged with trespassing. Yes, it's quite, it's quite a different, um, quite a different program. Yeah, yeah, a different model. So, um, yeah, it's. Um I then started to do some of the photo shoots for the magazine, um, utilizing the Colorado ski areas as well. So we used to do all the photographing for the technique articles at the end of the season. So I used to go back out um, about sort of April time, something like that, mm-hmm. um, get some new equipment. I used to ski for Mark Unak, doing a lot of um, ski photo shoots. Uh, get some equipment from him, clothing, etc. So just there was a nice collaboration between clothing, equipment and new products in a ski magazine. Photographs always date very quickly. Yeah. So if you could get the latest equipment, the newest ski suit, yeah. uh, bearing in mind when the article would come out. So we used to spend a lot of time getting the right kit, making sure that the images were were time-specific, not using some old image of, of, of somebody or an old ski suit or old equipment. Mm. So that was great fun, actually. That lasted five years. <clears throat> and then sort of during that period with my work with Saab, I got more and more um, connected with the automotive industry. Um, so that, again, is is takes up the majority of my year now. Um, I guess I'm only coaching about two to four weeks a year. Yeah. Now, I'm no longer a trainer. I hung up the trainer's hat this year in, in uh, January.
2: Okay.
1: Um that's I thought 20, 20 years as a trainer, twenty five years of, of a trainer was, was about enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've been been teaching for thirty eight years, so uh Yeah. Yeah. It's Maybe a n- while.
0: Yeah, a little, little bit of a break. Well thanks for the the, 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 the I mean, there's a lot to fit in, but to summarise it, for, you know, in that uh, in that way, is fantastic. Now, when what I really, I think, what we're going to get the most value out of probably is to, is to talk about teaching and technique, and I'd love if we've got time to touch <coughs> on the, the the boot fitting work that you do as of well. Of course, yeah. because those are the kind of the three things that I think everyone's going to be the most the most interested in. Um, now, when I, I'm going to I'm going to tell you the two things that really stood out from that. Um, level 3 technical exam that we did. The three things that have stuck in my mind and still stick to this day and, 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 and I still teach to this day. Those those things, you know, they say the uh, the best teachers are the, the greatest thieves. So I've stolen these two things shamelessly from you. But, um, we, yeah, we, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we talked about two things and, and we'll, we'll use these two and if we find any others then we'll talk about them. But, but one of them was... I thought was especially clever, which was when you're in a, you've got clients in a snowplow turning situation, so they can turn. And we've all had that client that's got the sort of the stiff inside leg or stiff legs yeah. in general. Yeah. And you you kind of went through a very, very clever thing which talked about the bi- biomechanics or, or the mechanics of how the hip joint itself actually works. is yeah. it's, it's a hinge joint in, in effect. And the problem is, is that if it is braced or stiff, and I hope that I've remembered this right, otherwise I've been teaching it wrongly for the last 10 years, <laughs> but the, as, you, as you close that joint, it also allows it to rotate. So if you are putting some movement in that hip joint as you're going around the turn in a snowplow turn,
3: yeah.
0: it allows the inside ski to be able to flatten off and rotate so yeah. that it becomes it's it's just a sort of shortcut to a plow parallel or almost more like a <coughs> parallel environment and you see it often with with um, with snowplow skis that sort of stiffness <coughs> that means that they're never going to be able to get the skis to match because the inside tail of the um, the tail <coughs> the, the rear tail inside tail of the the inside ski is sort of you know, it's hooked up in the snow because there's no flexibility yeah. within that hip joint. Do yeah. You, do Do you want to expand on that or other similar things to to that? It's, I assume
1: I've got it right. I Hope so. Yeah. I mean, I think what triggered the the thought process. Uh, I know Joe Beer mentioned it. Um, we were both lucky enough to be part of the demo team in Japan and back in '95. And when you when you're standing there at the bottom of the slope, looking at 37 other nations yeah. doing snow plays for their country yeah. <laughs> um, and I was lucky enough to represent um, Great Britain in snow plays, which is one, one of my better achievements i I'd think, say yeah that's right up there. <coughs> Myself and Sue Dixon did um, snow plays for Great Britain um, it was um, when you look at other countries perform their snow plays, and when you look at other countries perform all of their all of their demos There is a difference, and the difference is in the movement. Mm. And I think what triggered the majority of my thoughts were skiing on different surfaces. So if we're skiing on an artificial ski slope, like when I say artificial, I don't mean a snow dome. I mean bristles. Mm. The bottom of the slope on bristles is probably around about 15 degrees. It's really steep, 15 to 20 degrees. If it's any flatter, you won't slide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Most snow domes are around somewhere between about 9 and 13 degrees. Now, 9 and 13 degrees on in a ski resort is generally a blue run. Mm. Now, when we coach, uh, when we teach, when we present ploughing, which is the first sort of uh, way of changing direction, mm. We're generally on a slope that's about three or four degrees.
2: Mm.
1: Now, if you've got, you can plow really easily in the fall line when you're going straight down the hill, and that's because both feet are the same height. Yes. When you change direction, so imagine now that you're turning left, which tends to be most people's favorite turn because they're right foot biased. When you're turning left,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. your left foot increases in height in relation to the lower foot. Mm Mm-hmm. So, if you measure the distance in angle between those two feet, yeah. because you are effectively skiing pigeon-toed, which is completely against the way that we're designed, yes. and when you rotate the legs, <clears throat> and I'm going to say legs, not feet here, because it's really difficult just to rotate the feet. It feels like you're rotating the feet, because that's the first point of contact that you can feel through the snow,
2: mm-hmm. but you're
1: actually re- rotating everything. And there's not much rotation. If you really measure how much angle there is,
2: mm-hmm.
1: your legs, your, your hips can only flex and move so much with that rotation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you're skiing in the foreline, when you change direction, you should flex and increase the amount that the hip closes as you turn. Most people don't, hence the blockage. Mm. Blockage creates the catching of the tail of the ski on the left. The distance of those skis in angle, you can try it now if you want to. I mean, if you were to stand on something about the same size as a shoebox with your feet shoulder-width apart Mm. and then putting your feet in, if you were to try and lift that inside foot a little bit more, it gets blocked yeah. If you put that foot parallel, it releases the hip joint. So what I'm saying is that exercise is brilliant, but only relevant if you've got a slope that's steeper than five degrees.
0: Because on a slope that's around five degrees, it's perfectly feasible just to just to have a really static slope. Absolutely.
1: And just kind of point it where you want to go. Absolutely. And this is where, because of the foot height difference, it's the ability for the body to move. So I'm a true believer of not just picking the correct technique for the skier of where they are in the learning, Mm. um, learning phase, but making sure that they're on the right slope. And Mm. so many people judge their skiing by the color of the slope and the speed that they ski at, um, which is which is obviously our own nightmare.
0: Well, do you know, do you know, it's a lot of people get really hung up on that because I think it gives them a measure of kind of their, well, one achievement or two, what they should be scared of or what not to be scared of. I don't Obviously. even, I don't even talk about it. For me, it's either it's steep or it's not steep. Um, yeah. I don't, you know, if a, if a kid asks me or, or an adult asked me, I just, I actually don't know what, 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 what gradient this slope is. No idea. Um, it, you know, it's either steep or it's, it's not steep, you know, and we adapt, we either turn more or we don't need to turn as much.
1: Mm. No. But your movement pattern should match the slope angle. Yes. And if you don't, you're fighting with physics and guess what? Physics is gonna win. Mm. Mm. Always.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that movement pattern has really struck me. If I'm if I was delivering a course um on a on a snow dome, for instance, where the lower slopes are generally up, they're above five degrees. We know that. They're they're between nine and eleven, mm-hmm. as I mentioned. Um Teaching a snowplow beyond, let's say, half a turn, so you're not completing the turn, you're doing half a turn, anything more than that where your foot height difference changes, you have to change your technique, otherwise the inside leg will get blocked and it will get caught. Not Mm. maybe, it will. Mm. So the point of matching the skis to a parallel has to be (laughs) sooner within the arc than if the slope was flatter. I was involved in the ski slope design for the slope that was due to be opened here in Western Supermare. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I gave the architects a bit of a nightmare because I suggested, I dare suggest that the beginner slope at the bottom Mm. uh, was no more than five degrees and they asked me why. And I gave them a sort of physical and biomechanical reason why. And they just looked at me and said, well, I think you've just cost us about two million pounds to redesign the bottom of the slope. I well, if welcome.
0: not, it's, di- it's difficult, right? We have this issue in one of the resorts that we're, it, locally here in, in the Port de Soleil. We have a bit of a, um, uh, you know, we, what we do is we take our clients according to kind of their ability to different places. So we're not fixed in one place. Now, it just so happens that Morjan's got an amazing magic carpet and a tiny, you know, perfectly, a really, really good slope for doing that initial gliding snowplow on. Yeah. But after that, it all gets steep and weird and off camber. Yes, and you know halfway down the sort of what you'd call slope two, there's a big dip. So you know you're you're actually accelerating even more as you as you go towards the the lift queue. And then the other one, you've got to kind of ski a special line. Um, otherwise, you end up down down something really really steep. So that place is a bit of a nightmare. You go over to La Croze. Um, that's got a rope toe. No one likes the rope toe, but the slope itself is perfect. You know, a perfect pitch. You go to Champery, There's nothing. There's no beginner facilities there. Um, there's some cool stuff in Villar, for example. But again, you know, there a is. lot, a lot of off camber stuff, and there's a lot of kind of steeper stuff hidden in what should be a sort of fairly even beginner slope. Um, you know, that that's it, it is tricky. You know, and they say if you learn to ski in Morzine, you really, really learn to ski because everything's steep, pretty much after slope one. Yeah. You know, it makes it. Um, but I imagine every resort has its challenges in that respect.
1: Yeah, I must admit that's where we were really blessed working in Soledad and Andorra, because of the transition. You could ski for three or four miles on one of the flattest green, green runs. It yeah. was it was yeah. wonderful. You could get people moving and get them used to the forces that are built up within a turn.
2: Yeah. And I
1: think people feel those forces; they tend to react. A little bit more naturally mm. uh, the sliding is important we talk about riding bicycles but mm. I think when people talk about edging skills and rotary skills and all sorts of skills when you're riding a bicycle nobody ever tells you how much you should lean the bicycle over or like yourself when you ride a motorbike
2: mm.
1: nobody tells you how much you should lean the bike over no. you just do it instinctively and you're, you're reacting against the forces mm. And this is one of my bugbears of when people start to teach edging skills too early, when they haven't got the speed to support the lateral movement. Yes, yes. They're artificially edging. And the minute you start to introduce artificial edging, um, rather than a reaction edge, they're Mm. creating an action and a fixed shape. When you start to create that, you're you're on the road to nowhere because you're creating blockages.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and
1: people talk about positions, and there's no such thing as a ski position in 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 my language. Mm. It doesn't exist because balance in motion is is constant movement. Yes, constantly moving. And if you're not, guess what? You're out of balance.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And if you stand still, you're out of balance. Mm. If you lean forward, you're out of balance.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, Like Joe mentioned, it was you know leaning forward is hilarious because most people say lean forward because guess what? You're leaning back. (laughs) Yeah. They don't mean lean forward, they mean stay centred and balanced. But uh, you still hear a lot of people to say press on your toe, etc. Yeah, a, get, get, a it, foot. get your stuff forward. Yeah.
0: There? Well there's more to it than that, isn't there? And I think everyone who knows their stuff knows that we're not really talking about leaning forward, but you do hear it. You hear it often. you know, when you hang around a beginner slope often enough, you hear it, you know, this this constant thing about being forward but skiing is a sort of dynamic balance sport you know and, and a lot of it is reactive but it, a lot of it is just trying to stay above your feet right you know that's well I
1: remember my first couple of lessons I taught and um you know in, in the ski school in Andorra not only was I fairly concerned but I had a quite a bit of practice teaching um uh, I don't mean that rude to the clients I had at the time mm. but <laughs> I had some experience, shall we say, yeah. teaching at uh, Pontypool ski slope as a kid. You know, yeah. on the weekends and things. So I was, I was fairly, I was fairly confident. I felt, although I we're only about seventeen, um, but at the same time, I've met some clients and I know some clients now that I first talked in my first seasons in Andorra. I've apologised to them in recent years because I said I'm so sorry I spent all those years asking you to lean forward and (laughs) and get on your edges and put your hip into the slope yeah Uh, they've forgiven me but but I think if you've got regular clients Mm. um, I've got one one client uh, he's become a close friend actually in particular when I was working by myself he every ski trip this gentleman used to go on and I, I won't mention his name um Every ski trip, I was with him. So I used to ski with him probably about six weeks a year, all over the world. Switzerland, France, Colorado, all over. And one day, I actually had to say to him, look, I'm really sorry, but you just need to go skiing. You cannot make a decision without me being there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: He got to tuition overload, so he was the opposite end. He couldn't decide at the top of a chairlift whether he wanted to go left or right yeah. at that stage. Um, he was in a position with his work that he didn't want to think but it's a sport and I said look you need you need to go skiing you need to go and play and remember why you started the sport in the first place well and, 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 I mean, and make mistakes right like that.
0: and make mistakes you know yeah. I, I see this with my daughter growing up at the, at the moment and there's a, there's a real kind of push and pull between you know being a protective parent you know, looking after the the kind of well-being of your kid. But also, to a certain extent, you've got to let them go. You have to allow them to go and take risks because otherwise they don't learn. You know, they don't learn consequences to risk or or, or that kind of thing. You can't live in a risk-free world like that. You can't
1: have a guide to take you through your whole life. Um, And I look at our job as, obviously, is, you know, taking it seriously. We are, we're mechanics, all of us. But most people don't take their cars to get serviced or looked after enough. Mm. If more people went to a, you know, a recognized ski school or ski instructor more often,
2: yeah.
1: just, just once a year or once every, you know, it doesn't have to be for a whole week, just can be for a couple of hours. Yeah. If people just went to someone, the mountains would be safer. Everyone would be better. But most people just drive around in a car, never even check the tyre pressure or oil and wait until that red light comes on. Mm. And that's that's the majority of the skiers. They just go skiing. Mm. But we were to give them a little bit of information, now and again, everyone would be skiing better. Everyone would be more responsible. And guess what? They'd have more fun because they'd enjoy themselves.
0: Mm. Mm. No, it's true. It's true. I want to take you back to something that you just said a second ago about... Um, Alignment of the, the toes in, or, you know, the way that you hold your feet in a snow plough. Yes. So, so, very, it just struck a chord with me because there is a, um, there's a ski school in Villa and it's not the red guys, it's the other guys, the, the blue and yellow guys. Uh, I think it's called yeah. Villa ski school. Uh, you've probably seen them because you did some stuff in Villa you, you told me yesterday. Yeah. And um, those guys still use an old... Um, technique where they don't use they don't have the snowplow in their system they okay. teach everyone two parallel straight away so what they do is they start the start of the kids off or, or adults even on really really small skis and they yes. get them doing sort of step turns or turns you know step turns to the hill or whatever you call them turns of a thousand steps yep. whatever um and then they gradually get people used to on smaller skis which i guess have a, a pivot point which is easy to find than on a, on a big long ski. Um, and they get them going on very shallow slopes and they, and they just completely miss out that, that sort of snowplow section. Yeah. And I wonder if that, I don't particularly think I've seen the way they teach and it doesn't seem hugely popular, but I, I don't know whether it has that much merit or not, but you did just say to me that having your toes kind of pointing towards each other and using that as a method to balance, isn't necessarily the best way it could be done, or isn't
1: necessarily natural. I wonder yeah, if those guys it are onto something. Some tension in the top of the leg in the top of the femur within the hip joint, where your biggest muscle groups are, it does create an awful lot of tension. But I think everything in moderation. Mm. Uh, using the plow is a really good tool, unless the plow angle is too big mm. and the slope angle is too steep. Yeah, or Interestingly, when we've been in attendance with um, various interskis, and I've been lucky enough to go from I've done 20 years of interski congresses um, and been at six various um, congresses around the world, you see different people doing different types of snowplow. And I've connected the, well, there seems to be a connection between how people describe a snowplow. Against the equipment that they're wearing.
0: Okay. Tell me more
1: So for instance The Italians, or I'm not sure if they do now this year, so excuse me if I've got this wrong mm. But they certainly did talk about a snowplow as in pushing out the tails of the skis. Okay. Now, the majority of the trainers were on, and I'm not here to talk about bad products at different companies. I'm just going to say the products that they were using created such a heavy ramp angle within the equipment, their natural start position was very toe heavy. I see. So if they... you're standing on, if you've got a lot of pressure on the toes or on the ball of your foot, hmm. you've got a certain angle of the lower back and a certain posture which is slightly low or lower than the average, let's say that posture means that you will push out the tails of your skis because your equipment makes you start in that position. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So the well, relationship
0: ra- ramp, the- ramp angle is a whole, whole nother thing, isn't it? I, I, I right. met Joe a few years ago and he was on a, on a, on a quest to be at a zero, zero angle between the toe binding and the heel binding. But, unless you go and measure it with business cards and stuff like that which i'm i don't even know if i'm you know one of the only people who actually cares about this sort of stuff but i it's very very difficult to ski if you've got a ramp angle of anything more than about i don't know four mil because you just got your butt sticking up in the
1: air totally and it's 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 um it's boot length specific as well Mm. so for instance if you have um if you've got a very long boot in terms of millimetres, let's say you've got a boot of 28, 29. That yeah. height in the heel is less of a problem than what it would be if you had, let's say, a 23 or a 22 boot. Oh, really? Because if you move those two distances together, the angle gets steeper. OK. So you can do a little experiment. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. If you put if you put your finger underneath the end of a 12 inch ruler,
2: yeah,
1: for centimetres uh, <laughs> and then run that, pull your fingers together and then your ruler gets steeper.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So not only is your what's known on your bindings is a delta angle. Some manufacturers are extreme, um, you know, the biggest I've measured apart from touring bindings, which are another kettle of fish. Mm. Um, the biggest I've measured was seven millimetres difference. Wow. And it's extreme.
0: And they often do that with female bindings for some, um, I've heard that uh, female specific bindings because they carry more weight in the pelvis in general. Well, I mean that whole
1: thing I see as many different shapes in men as I do in women. Mm. So if you look at world cup equipment of all the world cup ski races, guess what, that equipment is tuned to that individual. Oh, Just because they were a World Cup ski racer doesn't mean to say that you have a setting for females and a setting for males. Okay, they have different ski lanes because of their um, their categories. Mm. But there's no different settings between the men's and the women's. It doesn't exist.
0: Isn't it the case, though, that they would look to be more... Well, this is a real tangent we're going off on. Isn't it in the case that they would, we, would want to be more more flat, because they don't
1: they don't need that extra push forward. Well it depends on the depends on the discipline,
2: mm. whether
1: they're doing slalom, giant slalom, because all of those diff- different disciplines have got different setups. Right. For art. And it depends on their boot size and it depends on the manufacture of their equipment.
2: Ooh.
3: And
1: I know for a fact that one of our British ski racers, um, when he was in the Olympics, you wouldn't mind me saying Alan Baxter. Mm-hmm. When he was racing, he had a he had a plate underneath the toe piece of his binding to level out his bindings for slalom. So he wanted to be more flat for slalom. He wanted to be flat for slalom, but that was for him. That was for his height. Mm. Bearing in mind, you've got to look at femur length, tip fib length.
2: Yeah. You've
1: got to look at boot size. You've got to look at the internal ramp angle, the external ramp angle, and the delta ramp angle. Mm. So there's all of this accumulation of angles. And... Um, Joe Beer will probably tell you he was suffering from knee pains with a shearing force of mm. the knee for many, many years. And um, the weeks that I've spent skiing with him, I said, come on, let's grab a couple of peace maps. And he said, well, why do we need peace maps? I know where we're going. <laughs> and I said, just put these under you, wedge them under the toe piece um, between the toe and just ski down this run gently. And he he will say that uh, his knee pain went within a, a couple of minutes mm. after. It for for
0: months. Well, we're going to. I'm going. I'm going to uh, well, as soon as the flights open back up. We're gonna. I'm going to come and see you um, for just to just to have a look at my boots and stuff like that. I, I've been. We talked about this on a previous episode, I think, with with Ed. And, and um, uh, I, I've got a quite a sort of guruy guy who's based near Geneva, a guy called Mark Fester, and uh, he's um, he's super. He's been really really good in terms of sort of making my boots comfortable for the first time in about five years. But, you know, I'm always looking for the next level. And I've got, you know, personally, I've got quite, I've got, I'm extremely flexible in my ankle joint, which creates yeah. actually, it sort of creates quite an upright back. You know, if you, if you can imagine, probably, well, it does, you know, uh, that, that's my experience of it. So a lot of my flexion comes through my ankles because I'm able to do that. But I also need a boot that supports that, that motion. But what it does is it creates quite an upright back angle. So I don't, you know, I say to people, like, don't look to ski like me. This is just the way that my body works,
1: you know? Well, you've hit the nail on the head because I get, well, when I'm, I work with um, Colin Martin at Solutions for Feet. So all of my tools and everything are there. Yeah. Um,
0: Hello, Colin, by the way.
1: Man's a genius. (laughs) It means that, um, I don't have to have a, because we we sell, or he sells boots from the shop and I just do the fittings. Mm. Um, And a balancing fitting will probably take a couple of hours um, after the fitting. So he does all the fitting. And what I like about his his work, we've worked together for many, many years. We've known each other over over 25 years. Mm. Um, He's a craftsman. Um, He will choose what's right for you. And... um, With the balancing that I do every boot it changes so you might let's say you're on a Salomon boot or a head boot and you've been on that product for years Mm. you can guarantee after two or three years the angles of that boot change so I've been sponsored and I still am sponsored by Salomon for sort of 35 years Mm. Um, they still provide me with equipment thank you Salomon and um, this year's boot was a completely different geometry than last year's boot oh really totally different and that's the race department boot not the one that you would normally buy off the shelf
0: that's interesting because I, I when i went to um when i went to see mark out here he said to me that this year because i took him um this year's head raptor which i you know i skin yeah. a head raptor because it gives me that support and the forward lean angle that matches my ankle but the the he said to me they changed the de- the the geometry oh uh, no not geometry he said they've changed the dimension somewhere yeah th- through the ankle on that boot uh, this year, which is new, but they'd left it alone for the last three years or something. Absolutely. Yeah. So
1: you may find that you are on a product for years and years. And then all of a sudden you've got to change brands because another brand is a better shape for mm. your foot. Because mm. your feet really don't change shape that much. Even if you've had um, people that have had even knee surgeries come to me and say, I've had a knee injury. I've had surgery. I want it. Want my boots balanced again? I said. Funny enough, guess what? Your foot's exactly the same because <laughs> you haven't injured your foot. You've injured no. your
0: knee. No. And you that, need, well, that's your... right. That's right. And he, to be fair, when I put these new boots to him, you know, he took the old notes that he'd taken on the previous visit two years ago, and he just, you know, did all of his magic on the boot, and all of a sudden it fits. It's like, yeah, well, your yeah. foot hasn't changed. There's nothing's changed here. You know, what you need is a proper, proper bed in there, and then they changed they and this year they changed the ZipFit liner, which I use. Which is a bit annoying um but it's actually turned out to be
1: okay um but it's oh, but even even ripped. ben kuma that created the zip fit, i've spent some time with him in aspen he managed to get me a zip fit with no filling in it at all so i could inject my own filling oh wow because i've got such a close-fitting boot mm. uh, um but you can imagine this scenario you've got a footbed you've got your boot and you've you're in the ski shop everything's feeling great mm. When you put your skis on, all of those angles could change, but nobody measures those angles. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's 100% true, right? Yeah, And that's one of the key things that I check when people come for a fitting because it's it's not just called boot fitting. It's boot balancing. It's balancing the equipment for your body shape. Mm. And the difference one or two millimeters in one part of the foot can make at the top of your head is unbelievable. Oh, it you is. Read.
0: It is because I went down the road after Joe told me about that knee thing that he yeah. had and flattening off the angle. I, I actually went and did that. So I put a plate underneath the. the I was in a Tyrolia binding, which I think has a has a four mil difference. Um, I well, used does. to. It used that to. That model year
1: does. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and uh, and so I took it. I, you know, I then took it down to two with a with a plate, and I just couldn't get. You know, for, for whatever reason, it pitched me too far back, probably to do yeah. my ankles. And I couldn't. I just couldn't get over the front of the ski, so I gave up that experiment, and I and I went back to it just being stock. But it
1: it was incredible the difference that it made. Really incredible. Well, it may mean that um, your boot was correct, but the binding wasn't, or Mm. vice versa. Yeah. Um, And that's you know if you start. If you start sort of, it's like a recipe, isn't it? If you start yeah. with the foundation being completely different, the end taste is is very, very different. And that's yeah. what happens when people say, "Well, I've been trying this and I've been trying that." It's like, oh, it's a domino effect yeah. of problems that yeah. you're opening up the can of worms. Um, it is. And and, uh, the I wife, love that when people come to me and just yeah. say, "Look, just just do your best." And I said, "Well, I always do my best. I'm never going to let the shop let you out of the shop until." um and often we find that people are in the wrong boot um and we're not going to try and make good of bad Mm. and i will Mm. never suggest to somebody to change their boots if they can let's say keep their old boots i'm one for keeping old equipment not getting rid of it if it works and the key thing is a lot of people are skiing with poles that are too short as well Ah uh, well, this is a whole other thing, you know. I'm
0: going to put that in the current trends in higher end skiing section, and we're going to talk about that in a minute.
1: <laughs> Short polls. But it's. But I've been, again, I've been very, very lucky to work with some of the world's best um, boot technicians. When I was working with Salomon, I actually worked on boot design. Um, yeah. Mm. I know there's been some good boots and bad boots from every manufacturer, but even looking at the plastics. Um, where the plastics come from and the different colors of plastic and how they affect the flex. And it's incredible because the pigments do affect the flex and they get affected by UV light and they get brittle and hard and stiff. So some boots get different than others in different temperatures huh. and it goes on and on and on and on and it's, it's quite incredible and boot flex indication is just a mere number on the side well
0: yes yeah that's and true. a
1: lot of people look at that number as a level of their ski ability yeah um, it's
0: just rubbish though When you know anything about boots you know you know that each each manufacturer is flex rating
1: completely differs compared to the other well not only that you've got to take in board or on board if you have as an example let's say you've got a size 10 foot Mm. and you're going to be in let's say i don't know a 27 or a 28 ski boot Mm. not only is that longer in the clog in the foot section it's also higher up the leg with
0: the associated yeah the associated force coming from the lever leverage effect right
1: so imagine if you've got a size 10 foot mm. and only, let's say, a 29 or a 28 inside leg, mm. you'll leave a length. So you could be, let's say, for instance, a level three Bayesley ski instructor, very good end ISIA skier. Yeah, But if you've got those dimensions, you probably only want about a 100 or a 110 flex boot. Mm. But if you have a much smaller foot, You With a shorter shaft and a a cuff of the boot, you probably want to have a 130 or 140 flex because you've got a different amount of plastic around your leg giving you different leverage. And the other problem is that boot could be so high up the leg it could Mm. be interfering with the calf muscle and the calf muscle is moving within the top of the boot rather than the the cuff of the boot holding you below the calf muscle where it's more solid. And it's closer to the bone. Why would so he,
0: why would a, a big heavy size ten foot, you know, ninety five kilo size ten foot guy like myself want yeah. a lesser flexing boot? Surely they would want more resistance against their
1: leverage power. No, because you've got more plastic in the boots, so the flex ratio is different.
0: Oh, I see. So there's more plastic sitting around your 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 ankle and your cuff? In yeah, general. it goes
1: higher up the leg. It becomes almost like a leg brace ah. rather than something that's going to hold you below the calf muscle. Oh, so me not putting those extra bolts in the back of the uh,
0: of the head Raptor has actually been a good thing all these years. I yeah. thought I wasn't yeah. just strong
1: enough to, to flex it when it was full of bolts. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the, at the end of the season where it's a lot warmer, mm. it's going to have a completely different flex pattern than early season or if you've been powder skiing for a couple of hours where your, your your boots go rock solid
0: well that is true you do notice that in march i often go through the front of the the the, the cuff in the,
1: in march you do see and it. i think let's let's look at the ankle as a suspension device not a boot that you just lean on and try and put pressure on the ski mm.
2: Mm. you know
1: it's it's part of your integral suspension And if you just press on the front of the boot, guess where your weight's going? It's going forward. Guess where that is? Out of balance.
0: hope you're enjoying this interview that we did uh, with Andy. Um, I very much enjoyed it myself, especially the chat to do with boots, and I certainly learned a few things in, in connection with, with how boots are constructed, um, and I hope to find out more about that if I get a chance to meet up with Andy this summer. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about a bit about the podcast. Um, this episode should take us past about 25,000 downloads of uh, of this this podcast, which is absolutely amazing. I never thought we'd get anywhere near that um, in in what is quite a niche topic. Um, And I also want to thank a few of you that have got in touch over the past few months, um, specifically uh, Lucas, Paul, Barbara, Robert and Bilal. I really, really appreciate you getting in touch and it's always amazing to hear um, from people all over the world and and just who is who is listening to this podcast so thank you uh thank you for your kind messages it's really really good barbara was specifically uh pulling me up on the fact that we haven't interviewed um uh, a woman yet which um which is actually true um and that's something that that is on the cards and i'm just setting up uh setting up something like that for the summer so uh so yeah maybe that will that will come off we will see um in part two, coming up, we uh, we carry on the technical chat, um, trends in high end skiing, pole planting, and something called the ski caddy, which uh, which I'll leave you to discover in uh, in part two of the podcast. Um, for the meantime, look after yourselves, everybody, and uh, I will see you. I already have actually, um, I already have episode twenty two in the can, and uh, that's going to be with Tom Waddington, who's the current Alpine Director of um, the British Association of ski instructors um i went to verbier to see him the other week so um so that's already in the can i'll edit that up and that'll come out in due course Um, but for now yeah look after yourself and uh, i will see you on the next one While we're um, well, well I, I, we, we've currently jumped to the far left-hand side of my page, which is under boot fitting. So let's jump back. We talked about poles, and yes. we talked about we. Were, I'll take you all the way back to that that iconic level three um, session. But the you talked um, really nicely, and it's something that I've found always extremely useful with regards to kind of getting a, a flow element to your skiing which is yes. which is something that you talked about which is called flex connect and yeah. you talked about as you come around the sort of second half of the turn into the transition you're generally going to be in a flexed position yeah and if you're ha- oh, i don't really want to say hands are in the right place because that sort of, that me. that sort of talks about making shapes but I don't really talk about it. but ideally if you just have your if you're ready that flex should drop the pole into the snow, more or less in exactly the right place for you to make your next turn. Yes. So as you come around the second part of the turn, flex, bam, drop the pole in the snow. There it is. No, you know, you don't need any extra extravagant arm movement if you don't want it. Some, yes. you know, arms, I always say to, to my clients, arm. you know, your, your, your arm movement or your pole plant is your flare in your skiing. So yeah. if you want to make it flowery, do it. If you want to make it functional, do it. Um, I've been experimenting with how my hand arrives. Well, last season, actually, I've noticed that if my hand arrives in a certain place, the gesture that I make with my wrist, just my wrist, the actual direction that I push my wrist in, can actually help my body go over the transition into the next turn. Mm -hmm. You know, and you see that a lot, I think, with the Swiss guys, you know how they sort of have that arm that comes inside and then goes yes. back out again, like they're opening a door. Well, actually, what that does is that creates a sort of quite a big toppling effect, which you see quite a lot of the top of their turn. Um, but anyway, do you want to explain on on flex connect?
1: If, uh, yeah, if it, I'm I'm always keen on matching pole swing speed with flex speed. Oh. So. Ooh, now we're talking. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So well, if you went, matched, we, we get Yeah, then I bet you, you're going to talk going about. To say pole. about Go on, sorry. Sorry, I'm
0: talking over you. Go on, carry on.
1: Um, yeah, if they're matched, you're going to stay in balance. So as an example, a short radius turned down the full line on a relatively, let's say, a blue-red run. Nothing too challenging. You're not going to be turning too much, but your pole swing, your pole part is going to control your rotation. You're not turning very much. Mm. You've got the opportunity to do very flex, sorry, very fast flexing and quite a short, sharp pole swing. Hmm. I would coach that, for instance, if you're looking at introducing moguls, hmm. because if you look at mogul skiers, they're not turning very much. They're going almost down the fall line. Yeah. The key thing in moguls is pole swing speed. Most people ignore, most people f- focus on the feet.
2: It's yeah. so like a sprinter. Hmm.
1: Sprinters focus so much on their arms, it's, it's crazy. They don't focus on the legs. When they start, they focus on their arms. If you focus on your pole swing speed, guess what? Your legs will catch up. Mm. If you start turning your feet too quickly, the upper body gets left behind. Mm. So matching your flex speed with your swing speed, you'll know, for instance, if you're doing a longer turn that you want to put um, a pole swing or pole plant, Mm. because you don't always need to pole plant. It's subjective to where you are, what you're doing. Um, If you're doing a longer turn, which you could be going slower or you could be going faster, Mm -hmm. um, match your swing to your turn shape and your your skiing speed. Simple.
0: Mm. Really, really simple. Now, how does... See, I've been experimenting with this quite a lot and I've settled on a pole that I really, really like. And it's the yeah. the Compadel Carbon GS pole, um, the straight one, and yeah. that for me has a beautiful, beautiful swing weight. Yeah, and that I think is hugely important as well. You see a lot of people kind of skiing around with with, you know, big heavy poles with a with a with a, with a big basket on the end, and that yeah. that also affects the speed at which you're able to 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 swing it. But in addition, it creates a whole bunch of extra kind of momentum that can bring your upper body sort of around, if you see what I mean, around the turn. Um, And for that reason, I kind of like quite a light pole, you know, that almost isn't there is is my
1: preference. Well, I I think it's not only the the type of pole that you're using. I use an old Scott racer pole Mm. um, because it's just an aluminium shaft. I race with them and it's something that I like the the feel of. Mm. If I'm skiing a lot of steep terrain, yeah, I've been lucky enough to ski with some guys like Scott Smith and Seth Morrison, Kim wright and those guys in Crested Butte during the um, uh, free skiing championships. Mm. Uh, when I was fortunate enough to ski with Scott, he <laughs> not only was he sort of, dare I say, about 65 kilos um, and rocked up on a pair of 210 Super G K2 skis. This is a, a while ago. Well, he had yeah. 135 poles. And, and I, I was yeah. shocked to see the length of his poles. And I said, why are your poles so long? He said, because the snow's a long way away. I thought, actually, yeah, he's right. Of course he's right. He's one of the world's best skiers.
3: Mm.
1: But that that triggered a thought. When most of us learn how to pole plant for the first time, we're on a relatively flat slope, so the part of the snow that you're connecting with,
2: yeah. when
1: we find it beneficial to, to pole plant, is generally a red run or a black run. It's yeah. steeper. Yeah. Guess what? That pole is further away, and it's effectively, if you were, if the pole's too short, you have to flex too much or lean out either one of those two is going to compromise your performance. So what I'm suggesting is if you're always skiing on something quite steep, Mm. go for a slightly longer pole to make sure that that connection isn't forcing the body to be too low or you're leaning in or out or in a strange position. So we should change our pole length according to the slopes that you're on and the terrain that you're skiing in. Mm. Well, that's not always possible, though, is it? No, people talk about teles- telescopic stuff. I mean, I've settled for a, a pole length. I'd buy a pair of one thirties and then cut them down a little bit. I found a one two five for me is a little bit short. But you imagine mm-hmm. if you are, if you look at a modern ski, you've obviously got the thickness of the ski. Yeah. You've got the thickness of the, the binding. Yeah. You've often got a plate. Yeah. If you measure the distance between your foot and the snow hmm. it's normally about five centimeters yeah now when you're in the ski shop and people hold that right angle yes. with the boat yeah. yeah. and you hold it under the basket it yeah. should be that length plus five it should be but it never is is it no it never so is. most people are on a, a pole that's too short
0: no i personally ski a 130 pole and i, I I've had a few people <clears throat> say to me they're quite long, but I think it's just right. For me, it's more about where the pole arrives Central, you know, yeah. in space and time. And I personally skier one, I'm, I'm one, one meter 86, which is just about six foot one. Yeah. And, uh, and 130 is about where I want to be because it's just a, as, as I come around the second part of the turn, my hand is in that place and it's literally just for me, just a case of drop the pole in the snow. And that's, yeah. that, that's kind of, I don't
1: know, that works for me, but it might not work for everybody. Well, I can guarantee if you were on a, a very flat beginner's run, they would feel too long. Oh, they, yeah, they, and often they, they do. Yeah, often they'll, they, perfect.
0: yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, since we're on that, that topic <laughs> of current trends in higher-end skiing, because this is something I wanted to talk to you about, because, you know, you were part of that sort of, and or a scene that that you know you saw a lot of good skiers back then that would have been what late 80s 90s yes. time. yeah time now the skiing's changed a lot since then uh, and in many ways oh, and and it, well this is what I was gonna say in many ways it hasn't um, but current trends in higher end skiing seem to be shorter poles um, feet closer together it's almost like something's gone full circle actually in many ways um but what 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 do you make of the start i imagine you see a fair bit of of modern modern high-end skiing ski instructor skiing i should say we're not talking about the world cup but um what, what what does it look like to you sort of with a view with a with a sort of looking through a lens of of the past on it
1: um i've seen some huge transitions i think if just as an example you talked about earlier on of the guys in, in Vila missing out the plough phase. Mm. Um, I was in America when they decided to to have a similar type of thing. Remember when Elan introduced the parabolic ski and mm. it was the very first sort of carving ski? I mean, everything carves. It just needs a, a bigger mountain. Mm. Uh, you know, if you've got a, a straight ski, it will still carve. It just needs a lot more room um, or, and more speed the parabolic ski that elan introduced um some years ago i think it was sort of in the late 90s 98 um, 97 98 when the americans introduced that was at a very similar time when the koreans decided to have a different turn radius for different uh, sorry different ski with a different turn radius for different turn shapes okay so and and that was their philosophy it was a little bit like playing golf mm-hmm. where you know if you want to make a short shot you're on a, an eight or a nine iron or a pigeon wedge etc yeah or a driver for a longer shot mm-hmm. um so they would have a different shape of ski for your different turn shape and that was how mechanically minded and engineered they were yeah like you we don't have that luxury although saying that this gentleman that i skied with a lot i used to hire a ski caddy um, and the ski caddy was a guy who used to wash dishes in the in the uh, hotel. And I said, look, would you like to earn, earn yourself some money today? He said, well, what for? I'm just fr- free skiing. Perfect. Can you carry a ski bag around with you? He said, yes. Why? I said, I'd like you to carry two pairs of skis and follow us. He no, said, well, no. why? Because the client I was skiing in would have two different types of skis in that ski bag. I made sure it was a padded ski bag so yeah. could carry it on a jogger. But whenever we got to a certain pitch that suited, dare I say, a giant slalom ski or a ski that's slightly wider for a softer snow, yeah, we yeah. used to stop. He used to change his skis and he used to enjoy that run. No, come on. Come I'm on. deadly serious. We had a ski caddy that used to follow us around. With, and if you think about it, if you're on the mountain, all you need is three pairs of skis. Yeah. So we, we had somebody that followed us around the mountain with two pairs of skis in the back. So we called him the ski caddy. Oh, my God. I mean, it was, it was, was, who wouldn't want a ski caddy? I think
0: think part of the skill, I I don't agree with your friend, um, but part of the skill is surely being adapting. And part of the pleasure of it is making a ski work in conditions where maybe it's not designed
1: to work. 100% 100% yeah so it's the challenge I mean don't yeah. get me wrong the first time I went heli skiing in uh, in the bugaboos um, I turned up with a pair of race department slalom skis which yeah. at the time were probably about 198 in centimetres Yeah, uh, but nevertheless they had tip deflectors and I went probably skiing in, in the bugaboos all mm. week um, well, in fact a modern day slalom skis is not a bad
0: as long as you can stay over it and go straight enough modern day slalom skis are pretty good
1: Yeah, it's got a big fat shovel, right? Rather than on it, I must admit, I'm one of those, I like being in it rather than floating above it. Yeah, me too. So, yeah, coming back to the ski caddy, it was only, it was was a concept. He didn't do it every week we went skiing. We just did it a couple of days. And Mm. um, he understood the concept. We did eventually go back to one pair of skis. But I think if you are coaching somebody through the sensations, why not? If you are focusing on all-terrain skiing why not have a ski for their development that's more suitable for all-terrain skiing once they've got the movements Mm. so we used it as a training aid i'm not suggesting you do this every time you go skiing funny yeah um but it worked and it was this gentleman that i eventually said to him right you need to go skiing now you need to go and play Mm -hmm. so looking at the different different concepts and different shapes of ski of ski Interestingly when the Americans introduced the technique of almost eliminating plowing from their from their teaching progression mm-hmm. their injury rate went through the roof because carving was so high on their agenda
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, or so early on if you can imagine it in their in people's skiing goal yeah. people were learning how to traverse and traverse very quickly and get onto the edges very very early mm. um, people lost the ability to skid and to blend the skills in a turn mm. and they have no speed control yeah and if you think about it if you carve everywhere <laughs> you're going to be out of control oh, for sure yeah but and, and it was it was ridiculous it was like going down a hill with no brakes on mm. in, in a car you were you're were a passenger
2: yeah
1: you definitely weren't a pilot. And when you see I've been fortunate enough to be involved in ski design and ski manufacturing, when you see how wide skis have become now and the forces, anything wider than a sort of 70, 75 underfoot, the lateral forces that it's putting on the knee joint and the Mm. amount of people that are now when they come for boot fitting, are complaining with knee problems. Yeah. It's because of the width of the ski. It's, puts a completely different geometry on the turn shape because your edges should be under the boot, not outside of the boot.
0: Well, I've talked to to clients about this for for ages and, and a lot of, you know, clients will turn up for lessons on something that is, you know, plus 80 mil wide. It's a joke. And I'm like, well, where do you spend most of your time skiing? You know, Mister Mister Customer, like, do you are you that much of a powder hound that you spend plus 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 eighty percent of your time, you know, skiing? No, you're not. Uh, sorry, skiing powder. So no, you're not. So what do you spend most of your time doing? Well, I ski around on the piece with my kids. Well, why have you got these enormous fat skis on? Go get yourself a. Let's nip down the mountain. Grab yourself. You know, let's hire a pair of piece specific skis. And feel how easy it is to turn them. Because it's cool. <laughs> well, yeah, I know this. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's not good for people's knees. I, I completely agree with you on that.
1: And, there are, and it does make you move in a different way, and it does compromise your performance, mm. and, without doubt. And we can only suggest to people, and, and, but unfortunately, I think, when you find most instructors working closely with a ski shop, that's when you get the choice correct mm. when you're actually getting something that's not okay if you want to buy something that you can be an all-terrain skier then great go all-terrain skiing but don't come to me complaining that you that your parallels are a little bit scraper or you can't go into the moguls when you've got a ski that was designed to do a completely different job
0: yeah yeah well we um, can all feel that right I mean I, I've got a pair of um Oh, right. a, a pair of Dina Star patrols, I think. They are. I don't really have any off piece skis to be honest with you. I had some that I really, really liked and I sold them to a friend and I regret that. But I, I have another pair, um, another pair which are uh, I don't know, they're 88, maybe 90 underfoot. They're okay. though they're, 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 they're very good for one specific thing, which is powder days. Even yeah. then, they're not amazing at that. I'd rather be on a, a piece, key, if I'm honest, but the the. You know, it just doesn't do anything very well. They just all. feel clumsy, don't they? They're awful. You can't get them on an edge. You can't really carve them. You know, they don't work in bumps, like you say. They don't work they don't work anywhere. And, um, you know, I'd, like I say, I'd, I'd, I'd rather go a bit straighter. You be a ski caddy. Yeah, I yeah, do. <laughs> I'd rather go a bit straighter. You know, these Absolutely. guys... You were talking earlier about Scott Schmidt, right? You know, one of my all-time great skiers. You know, that that film, <laughs> *Blizzard of Oz, like, you know, watching... Everyone kind of raved about Glenn Plake in that, but Scott Schmidt was the star of the show, as far as I was concerned.
1: I mean, what a skier. Scott Schmidt! And there was another guy called Scott Kennett who actually used to run um, uh, called a Black Diamond clinics in Telluride Ski School,
2: mm.
1: and I attended a couple of his um, as a as a guest. Yeah, and it's just great to ski with people that just enjoy skiing that are mm. so untechnique focused and will tell you move right where do you want me to move just do what you're doing just just a lot more of it well we should
0: we should probably mix that in with with you know current trends in high-end skiing Because i see a lot of shapes you know i see a lot of people making shapes but that's one of your your things isn't it you know move have the freedom to be balanced where you need to be balanced at any given time rather than oh well the, the manual says i've got to be
1: here so this is the shape i'm going to make I think, interestingly, um, that was something that I wanted to put across when I was writing as the technique editor for the ski magazine. Most images that we saw in the ski magazine, guess what, was a static image. Mm. So working with Mark Unak, we were, I believe, the first, one of the first, to create, um, let's say, one turn made up of eight different static images.
0: Oh, like in Ron Lamaster's book. Like there's a load of those in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we started to do that back in the back in the sort of the mid nineties, early nineties. So people could have some form of motion looking at a static image. Yeah. And when we think of good skiers, most of us are looking at a static image in a magazine mm-hmm. and it's that static image that gets embedded into people's mind about images and positions and stuff i mean it is it's it's, it's a shame but hey i used to teach that um and as i said i, I apologize to dozens of clients i had to um say to them, i'm so sorry i asked you to stand in this weird position that was so unsporty it was about as sporty as waiting for a bus you know
0: isn't it? I wonder how many other industries there are like that.
1: Say, for example, you
0: had you were training to be—I don't know—pull something out of the top of my head—a futures trader, right? In the in yeah. the in the markets, they wouldn't let you do an entry level course and then let you loose in the market themselves, would would they? And no. yet we do that with no. skiing. We say to a kind of level, what you know, you've got a level one or a level two. Right off you go, and there's not much. I've been thinking this for a while. I wonder if there's a way to kind of reinvent the way that we do sort of ski school, you know, maybe with like a, a sort of apprentice and a master sort of within the same lesson, one watching the other or something. Well, you know, I think that was, that was the after.
1: beauty. Sorry, Dave,
0: I no, Dave. No, 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 carry on. on what you going to
1: that say? was the beauty of when we used to work in, the, in the ski school in Andorra, because, um, unless you were at a particular level, or had a certain amount of experience mm. you you had level ones and twos or what we called level ones and twos beginners and someone that's done one week of skiing mm. and you were observed and you had training and you had backup and you had support and you had friends to talk to and we other than talking about the usual dribble at a <laughs> lunch table yeah. you would be talking about ski technique and it's fascinating that you're always talking about the same same subject, and you would talk about the difficulties that you've got with people in your group, and you would share those problems, and you would get over that problem by talking to people. Mm. Um, And I I think there's a lot of that is lost now with the structure of how we have to get qualified to a particular level before you can work in a ski school, or before. So you you almost have to be good before you start work, where getting good takes experience.
0: It's true. It's a difficult one, actually, because you kind of, well, how do these guys get it? And one of the places that they seem to, or, or the guys that I get CVs from, you know, they seem to get it from places like Interski, where, yeah. you know, there's a bit of a sausage machine. You go there, you can kind of make your mistakes and your, you know, your you can make a bunch yeah. of hours and, and experience, you know, experimenting your ideas on, on, on you know, groups of kids that are bust out there or whatever. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I need to give that some more thought over the summer because I wonder if there's. What I'm trying to do is change my role within the ski school. I don't know whether it'll yeah. be possible, you know, post Corona. You know what sort of economic pressure you're going to be under next year, but the I want to change my role to a sort of roving. Uh, I don't know, roving boss man on the mountain. So I don't really want to teach that much anymore. I want to go around the mountain and do sort of what you might call quality assurance or just sort of a you're a observe. supporting role you're there yeah to help. yeah absolutely and that i think might be a really cool thing to kind of generally up the level of of you know teaching in the school and totally. you know for these guys you know you can pass on some of the stuff that, you know maybe you can try this maybe this you know oh, i saw you do that that was really cool it's a good learning opportunity for everybody
1: really yeah and i think when you if people start to understand um i mean w- when i was working in the ski school in andorra and funny enough because i'm like a lot of people doing a lot of housework at the moment and tidying up <laughs> i actually didn't realize i since being at home i i didn't realize i had the time to uh to work <laughs> it's, it's bizarre <laughs> but i found a list of notes um, Written and I counted. I've got fifty-three different exercises written on that piece of note paper. Oh wow! Now I don't. I mean, and I would try and deliver those in a lesson from Monday to Friday. And I think a lot of us feel as if unless you're giving your clients, your guests, a lot of information, we're not giving them value, and that's um, a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can make so much difference to someone skiing if you keep it. I'm not suggesting keep it simple because they're, they're not intelligent, but is the clarity. And if you just do exactly the same range but change the rate and range of movement, mm. you've got a different outcome. Yeah. You don't have to keep giving people different exercises, different drills. And this is where a lot of – I'm not going to say arguments, but a lot of understanding, I think, between instructors – I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. If you're doing um, a particular exercise, most people call it a name. As an example, a braquage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: or a cowboy turn, for instance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you do a particular cowboy turn or brackage, if you do it slightly different than the person next to you that has done it before, and I'm talking person being fellow instructor here, mm-hmm. they say, oh, I don't do my cowboy turns like that. And said, well... All you're really trying to do is look at the skill of, of skidding, edging, and rotary skills. Mm. Now, what about if you didn't call it a name and you just called it developing a skill?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, Stop calling things names. Because um, a javelin turn, for instance, skiing with the, the front of the skis crossed, mm-hmm. there's about five different ways of doing that. You know, and nobody, when I was writing for the magazine, I did an article once. I mentioned this the other day to you. Mm. Um, I did an article that got more phone calls into the ski club of Great Britain than any other. And it was okay. called Useless versus Useful. So, what I did, I took five classic exercises that you see on the ski, on the mountain every day of the season. Mm hmm. I turned those what I called it useless exercises into a useful one. And of course, instructors and clients were phoning up the ski club of Great Britain and complaining saying my instructor that I've been skiing with for 15 years in Austria has been teaching me this since day one. He's brilliant. <laughs> Why is some guy from Somerset telling me it's now useless? <laughs> um, and I give you an example, a javelin turn, for instance, most people, if you pick up the inside ski and cross it over and yeah. make a turn, most people cross the leg that you're standing on, which makes you have a twisted supporting leg, Yeah, which isn't very good. Because mm-hmm. that's like skiing in some bizarre snow plow at speed. Yes. Um, how about rotating the leg that you're picking up, not the leg that you're standing on? And that turns that exercise into one that's kind on the body mm. uh, you're not twisting the supporting leg and what about just lifting the tip of the ski slightly higher than the tail it keeps you centered mm. if you keep the tip of the ski low and the tail high that pushes you forward yeah so just those simple adjustments to that classic exercise of a javelin term makes a huge difference and that was just one example that I put in the magazine, turning a useless exercise into a useful one. Um, and I did a number of other ones like that. And I found the article the other day. And it was, it was hilarious because that was written back in 94. Well, I have um, to say, I have to take an issue. I was lying in bed
0: this morning waiting for everyone to wake up. And I, <laughs> I was thinking about your critique that we talked about yesterday about the, uh, the looking through the window drill which absolutely I was sitting there thinking he talked about that yesterday, but I use that a lot but I only use it in certain situations so I don't teach that as a as a matter of course when I use that that drill has a specific place we yeah. so, so that uh, we should explain to the listener so they're looking through the window when one, one is you put your arms out sort of semi in front of you you hold your poles vertically off the floor. And you imagine you're looking through the window at, I don't know, a sexy girl or a supermodel or whatever. And the idea is to keep everything square as you're, as you're sort of snow plowing down the beginner slope.
1: Are we- now, if you do that drill, modify it for a high performance drill, mm-hmm. and have your, let's say your hands or your, your window that you're looking through above your feet and your skis, it would be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? If you start if you're doing that in a medium or short radius turn of people obsessed with facing the body down the mountain, which is the way I was taught how to ski in Austria and, and yes. France. Yeah. Um how about facing the direction of travel? That's not a bad idea.
0: Yeah. And it's a bit more in line with the current equipment these days, isn't
1: it? Yeah, but your direction of travel isn't always where the skis are going. No, that's true. Dude, that that's what I mean. You are facing in the direction of travel. So if you are skidding, guess what? You're probably facing in the direction of travel, not the skis. Mm-hmm. So if you're carving, I'm going to use the word carving on a medium to long radius turn, you're probably facing in the direction of travel, which in that instance will be the direction of the skis. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's, that's the difference. I think when people are teaching... Um, they keep adding stuff on, but they never tell you when to take stuff off.
0: Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad we're on the we're actually on the same page because I only use that drill really when I've got someone <laughs> in <a>, us. <laughs> oh my god, Andy thinks I'm terrible. But the uh, the you know you know when you know that classic thing where you've got a guy on a beginner slope, a guy or a girl on a beginner slope, and what they do is to try and get their skis to go the way they want to go. They twist their entire upper body in that direction. And it creates that sort of inside leg block that doesn't allow yeah. the uh, the skis to turn. And they don't know why. That's when I get that drill out, the one with the um, the, the one with the poles. To kind of swear everything up.
1: I would make a suggestion to that. Mm. The reason they're trying to twist is probably because they are concerned that they're starting to travel too fast. So uh, I would so do like that. Yeah. I would flatter the slope and get them to flex lower. Mm-hmm. Those two things will allow the skis to change direction. If you're standing too tall,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you can twist easily. And anyone listening to this can try this now if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. If, you stand, if you've got your feet side by side, are roughly hip width apart or shoulder width apart, let's say in a snowplow width, mm-hmm. they don't have to be in a snowplow shape, it's dead easy to rotate the upper body. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you flex, but flex not just with the ankles, but more with the hips, bearing in mind that the hips close more Mm -hmm. than the ankles and knees. If you flex and then try and twist, it reduces that rotation. Do you know
0: that's true? I'm actually, I'm standing up doing it now. Yeah, that is. That's right. So your flex
1: height will dramatically increase or reduce the ability to rotate. Mm Mm-hmm. So most people are standing too tall as their start position, giving them the ability to rotate easily. When I say rotate, I mean rotate above the hips, so what I call spinal rotation. Mm -hmm. That's dead easy. And of course, if you notice that the inside leg or the inside of the turn is now blocked, but if you flex, it automatically lines the body up.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Automatically. So rather than trying to paint over the crack by holding their body, look at why they've had the ability to turn and their ability to turn is because they're standing too high.
0: Mm.
1: If you make them flex lower, they won't be able to rotate because their body aligns themselves. It's interesting. Always look at the cause I would recommend rather than just trying to change their shape or change the change the problem. Look at what's created that problem. And if you keep going back, um, do you know what? Sometimes they might be, their boots could be too big or it could come down to an equipment-related problem that's not their fault. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I find that in my other industry when I'm working in the automotive industry, occasionally on the circuit,
2: hmm.
1: if I'm asking somebody to rotate the wheel or steer and they've got a blockage in their upper body
2: hmm.
3: because
1: their arms are too straight, guess what? Changing their technique isn't going to change it. Changing their driving position will change their technique, mm. not their um, not their um, technique. Let's um
0: let let's jump back. So we got to we got to <laughs> we got to this point from talking about a ski caddy, and you were talking about <laughs> you were talking about Koreans with different different things in their quiver for different types of turns. Now, where did where did all of that stuff lead in terms of sort of technique and and what you see now with ski instructor high-end skiing
1: um i think we've adapted to the equipment that we're skiing on um last year sorry um yeah it was last year last season not this season just gone Mm. i skied on an old pair of my skis and um i couldn't do the same movements as I do on a modern ski. Okay. It's simple. It's not, it's not that the technique has evolved. We are just changing our movement pattern according to what's on our feet. You mentioned earlier on when you're skiing on an off piece ski, Mm. if you ski on that big fat off piece ski that's designed for soft snow, um, if you ski on that on the piste, you have to make different movements. Yeah. If you're on a slalom ski, you have to make different movements. Mm. And I don't think there's enough, Um, focus on changing movement patterns to match the equipment in ski techniques. Yeah. It's really simple. You ski to what you're wearing, not to what it says in the book.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: And that's the change. That's the change. I think we've all adapted according to the equipment. 25 years ago, we were all skiing, or well, most the instructors I knew were skiing on and Four S's. They were the benchmark, the minty green ski. They were amazing, mm-hmm. or K two KBC, but they were the benchmark skis at the time. I've still got mine, and that's the ones that I skied on. Um, whenever we were skiing on those skis, we were hunting for edge grip.
3: Mm. All of
1: our techniques was biased around gripping and edging and angulating and edging like crazy and pressure edge pressure. And angulation were the three key things that you would teach to a high-end group guess what manufacturers started to make skis in racing that would grip easier that would carve better mm-hmm. and make a nice arc yeah we automatically had carving given to us and edging given to us by the equipment so everyone got obsessed with edging and carving mm. the skill that they forgot was how to skid yeah Everyone forgot how to ski, so everyone—I've been skiing in uh, Verbier, and then you're everyone is flat out down the slope <laughs> in a straight line, and yeah. they've got full-on body armor, Dainese. They look like they're in a motocross competition, yeah. not going skiing. Welcome to Verbier, yeah. And it's people are getting hit yeah. because you've got these people on this kit that are just going flat out,
2: yeah.
1: and. Um, I'm not suggesting it's just in that resort by no means, but you've got people on the wrong kit and they've, Mm. you know, they're, they're running before they can walk, Mm. but the equipment is making you do certain movements. And if you were to put certain people on different equipment, they would make certain, certain movements much, much easier.
2: Mm.
1: And I don't, I mean, the body hasn't changed shape over the last 30, 40 years.
0: Yeah.
1: And if you look at how, if you look at some old videos of races, um, giant slalom skiers in particular, I think it's easier to observe GS skiers because the movements are a bit slower. Yeah. Um, I, I'm fascinated to watch giant slalom and supergiant um, because of their movements. Mm. Their movements aren't dissimilar to what today's skiers are making. Mm. Um, because the turn radius isn't quite so far apart. Slalom's very different because the skis are quite different. Yeah. But I can guarantee if you put on a pair of slalom skis, you would make the same movements and it would look the same as Ingermar Stenmark. Well, I know I wouldn't look, look like Ingermar Stenmark, but
2: mm.
1: it would look very, very similar to a lot of those skis. And I think looking through the decades skiing was a fashionable sport when i started to learn how to ski it was very much about looking good before you could ski well mm-hmm. the austrians the french and the italians and i think the italians now they still don't have mogul skiing in their or, or terrain skiing in their ski instructor syllabus mm-hmm. they want you to ski well and they want you to look good yeah. and it's part of their 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 philosophy part of their Lifestyle, it's cultural, right? Yeah,
0: looking good is cultural in Italy for sure,
1: and there's nothing wrong with that no. at all. I mean, mm. that's off to them, fair play. They do immaculate grooming, and it looks great, and it's part of their culture, like you said. Mm. And I think where the fashion of the ski industry has a transition into a sport, that's where ski instruction has been caught up.
2: Mm.
1: Mm. Where and they're still, when I go to Aspen, you know, you've got somebody with with a pair of skis on their shoulder, a matching ski suit, possibly a matching dog. (laughs) Uh, Joking aside, it does happen. And you can tell, you think they've got a pair of skis on their shoulder, but guess what? They're not wearing ski boots. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're just sitting outside of the cafe, watching people ski with a pair of skis sitting next to them, but then no intention of going skiing at all.
2: Yeah. yeah. But they
1: just look good. And you try telling those people that skiing is a sport. It's a lifestyle. (laughs) Yes. And I think no matter who we are coaching, as long as they want to learn and as long as they want to be a little bit open-minded rather than turning up on a lesson, uh, and you you must get this, teaching people that don't want to learn, they're there because they have to be, rather than because they want to be. Mm -hmm. And that's why I used to really enjoy all the Bayesian courses, because people doing exams and people training to exams have got a reason to be there. They really want to learn how to change. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. it's a different mentality. Mm. People mm. on holiday are just there and they go, okay, they expect we have a magic wand and wave the magic wand and we become great.
2: Mm.
1: And how many people have you had, Dave, where people have said, I want to learn how to how to ski moguls. And you say, oh, okay, fantastic. Mm. Let's just look at. The, let's just have a little run down here to see where you're at. Yes. And you think, I'm not taking them into the moguls because <laughs> they're going to really hurt themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: It, it's 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 can think of that one has happened at least three times this this just this season gone. You know, you've got a lot more, a lot more to work on before we go mogul skiing. And I think we've got to be we've got to be quite
1: delicate of how we approach that because that's mm. their dream, that's yeah, their goal. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. You know, be uh, we've you know, you're more than a ski instructor, more than a teacher when it comes to that. Yeah. You've got to be so delicate and say look, these are the ingredients that you need. In the moguls, let's see if you can do them on this blue run first. Yeah, you're, you're missing three out of five key skills. Come on, let's work on these three skills. Come back tomorrow and let's let's keep ticking these off the list until I can safely put you in a lumpy environment <laughs> yeah. before we even get to bumps. You know, yeah, that's for sure. Because you, I think we care. That's that's not a problem. It's a good skill. We care as instructors mm. because you care for your clients. That's the difference. I've worked in some industries where instructors in a different industry are just instructors they're delivering information yeah I don't think they really care that much because it's not necessarily their livelihood
0: mm. all right well let's um I realize we've been going for quite a long time now but let's um let's finish off them with with kind of what you're up to today so you still do a bit of boot fitting but but your your life takes yeah. you now in a in quite a different direction um, you're jetting all over the world promoting rolls-royce and uh, doing driver education, as I understand it.
3: Yeah.
1: um, Well, I'm still very serious about my boot fitting. Um, Working with Colin Martin at Solutions of Feet, Um, in my opinion, he's got probably the best workshop in Europe.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So I work with him on an appointment basis, probably once or twice a month, obviously not very much at the moment because everyone's a little quiet. Yes, for sure. Um, My automotive work started sort of over 25 years ago um I was doing some racing and some race coaching as well um water ski raced and jet ski raced so anything with an engine I was quite quite keen on but unfortunately my budget was a little bit um less than my, my need <laughs> yeah so I was bicycle racing for a while as well so the automotive industry came about not only was it a key passion um working with an agency that i work for at the moment um they were fortunate enough 15 years ago to get a contract for rolls-royce i worked for a lot of other manufacturers mm. um through the agencies and that gives you i'm not suggesting the company i work for at the moment is that is the pinnacle although they probably are to be honest mm. it's rolls-royce motor cars so i work through the agency rather than directly for them mm. they can't employ me directly because i've i've got about four or five different job roles okay um with them so product training product launching stunt driving film work um staff training internally and externally customer experiences um global media launches etc
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Rolls Royce motor cars um have just a wonderful wonderful company part of the bmw group Um, to work with. I mean, the people are just so passionate. and I I, I align it to a lot of people I've worked with in the past in the winter sports industry. And occasionally you're on the circuit, not always in a Rolls-Royce, but often in a Rolls-Royce, believe it or not, we do take Phantoms on circuits. (laughs) I'm not suggesting a Phantom is the best track car. No. You can pedal on when you've got over 600 horsepower. Yeah. Um, It's, I think the level of detail with the brand, bearing in mind they take over a month to build a car. Mm. What, in comparison, you've got your you know a high-end luxury car from Mercedes or something S-Class will take two days. Yeah, um, the, just the quality of materials and the engineering is fascinating. To spend time with the engineers, um, helping them develop parts, um, so sort of understand why they've developed the certain parts that they have, mm. um, and of course you the, the best bit. Is traveling and meeting some fascinating people, whether it's um, film stars, royalty, hotel owners, and just really finding out um, how those people got to where they are now. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the likes of Sir Michael Kadori, who owns the Peninsula Group of Hotels, Mm -hmm. grew up in Gestad or Stad. Yeah. And um, he's a keen skier. So. we're, there we are on a Rolls Royce test drive. I met him in his London house, and we drove to his other home in the Cotswolds.
2: Yeah.
1: We had a six-hour test drive in a Wraith, and yeah. uh, within minutes, you you stop talking about the car because that's a given that it's amazing. And yeah. we we spent most of the time talking about skiing. I have to say that valley. Um, I,
0: I I ride through there often. I love the Cestad, start the Sun and Valley, the Chateau day. All of that, it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful ski area. Like, it's just yeah. so nice. Yeah, it's not too steep. Mountains aren't too extreme. Loads of trees. The light is lovely over there. Like, it's a beautiful place to ski. It really is.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And the the customers with, with Rolls-Royce, are, you know, um, are lovely. Very, yeah. very lovely. And, and some of them have become good friends over the years. Yeah. Um, you get the opportunity to drive, especially in some of the filming I've done over the last few years, um, some of the global launches images that you might see on the internet. Mm. But the most fascinating part of my work, I think at the moment that I've created is the, um, chauffeur program. Okay. I was sitting in a traffic jam, um, it's about seven years ago now coming back from the concourse d'Elegance at Villa d'Este near Lake Como. And I was mm. sitting with the chief executive and I've been driving, um, the chief executive for Rolls Royce for the last 10 years all over the world on various occasions. And, uh, he said, Andy, um, what do you think makes a good chauffeur as we were sitting in a traffic jam on the way to Milan airport? And I said, well, there's a number of things. He said, well, being German, he just wanted short, sharp answers. And I said, okay, off the top of my head, they need to be sharp. Mm -hmm. They need to be effortless and above all professional. And he said, when you say sharp, what do you mean? I said, oh, I mean, I mean like a, you know, James Bond in a brioni dinner jacket. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, because sharp in German means a little bit arrogant and a bit off. Yeah. Um, he said, oh, okay, I understand. He said, I like that. Sharp, effortless, and professional. I said, yeah. He said, can you expand upon that? Anyway, two hours later, we'd verbally written the global chauffeur program. He signed it off and he sent me to Singapore and my first audience was a global media audience of 28 um, media from all around Asia mm. and that seven years ago now and it's just gone global. So anyone out there wishes to have the chauffeur certificate from Rolls-Royce, um, drop me a line. I'll, mm. uh, I'll help them out. Right. There are all sorts of things on the internet. It's called the White Glove Programme. Mm-hmm we call it white glove associated with meticulous attention to detail.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so fortunately now the chief executive has appointed me to be the, uh, the chauffeur trainer. Okay. So okay. whether it's the wind hotel, whether it's a private chauffeur, mm. um, people think it's the dream job and it is amazing to be appointed that for such a iconic brand. Yeah. Your mind, they're 115 years old yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been amazing, absolutely, and, a, and an honour to represent a brand like that. I never thought I would be doing that when I was sitting in the ski school at 17 years old in Andorra.
0: No, it's, you never know where life's going to take you, do you? That's no, sure. it's been amazing, I must admit. All right. Um, so at the end of all of these, what I do is I give give uh, the guests a chance to kind of, you know, say where they people can get hold of them if uh, if, if they need to. So if people want to get in touch with, with you, Andy, where, where's the best place to... To, to get in touch
1: um i would say an email is the best okay uh my email address is andy a n d i that's my real name mm-hmm. at McCann a double n and then i x indigo x com. so it reads andy at com.
0: All right. Well, I'll put a link to that in the in the uh, in the notes to the podcast, so that if anyone does want to get in touch with you, they can. Um, that will be brilliant. There's a whole pile of
1: other subjects we haven't crossed. Well, maybe
0: we'll do. Maybe you know. I, the thing is, it's great to get in touch with you now because Joe says that you're the most difficult person to get in touch with when you're uh, when you're working. So I just um, make him think that way. <laughs> 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 well, well. Hopefully, we can have an Andy part two, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll touch on all the other stuff that we did. Well, I think
1: I think do. this is a great opportunity, and, and because I do, as you know, um, the only person I've actually worked for um, outside of my own work has been Joe, mm. because we've got such a great close relationship, and I, I just love the way he teaches, and I and I truly believe what he does. Mm. Um, so I've been helping him out during half term mm. um, when he's been busy, because obviously he's been working by himself. Yeah. Um, he gets lonely. But, bless him. Yeah, I think the the great. Op- we need an opportunity to all three of us to get together and have a slide around. Oh, a I'd love that. I we'll do that, that outside of uh, of half term because it's great to have <clears> like minded people. And and I just thanks again for for this opportunity. It's been amazing.
0: Well, that's brilliant. So, um, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the pod, and uh, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll grab you another time for uh, for Andy McCann part two
1: heart to you superstar. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right.
3: Take care, everyone.